0: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer.
1: And I'm Will Arimus.
0: Yay, Will! Hi, everyone. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, June 25th. And first and very foremost, I want to welcome my former co-host, Will Orimus. Uh, It's so nice to have him back. He's now a senior writer for One Zero, which is an imprint or or section of Medium. Uh, And he's been doing great work there. And Will is uh, joining us once more. Thank you so much for coming on, Will.
1: April, thanks for having me back. I'm happy to be here. Um, Your guest hosts since I left the show have been so good that I actually feel kind of honored just to be... One of those guest hosts. Thank you for having me on, Flair.
0: Whatever, Well, you're You're, you're like so. Your your humbleness is like such a signature part of you. It's it's great to have that back too. Um, and it has been fun to have guest hosts, but I have missed you. And I also want to share some news. Uh, for folks who have been listening to the show, we've been doing it now for like well over a year, almost two years. I want to thank you all for listening. This will be my last show for the foreseeable future. Uh, filling in. From here on out for the next few months will be a rotating cast of amazing Slatesters who will be uh, interviewing all kinds of interesting folks, keeping up on the latest tech news. I really recommend that you continue to listen in, and I will miss uh, hearing from listeners. You can still keep in touch with Will and I, if you don't already, follow us on Twitter or send us emails, uh, complaints. It's been a lot of fun interacting with everybody, and that's why I wanted to bring Will back uh, because this is my last show uh, for a while, and I've done almost all the shows with him so i thought it would be really great will to, to have you here with us for what's going to be kind of a punctuation for me
1: i love it thanks
0: so also joining us is a bit of a, a caravan of stars from slate current and past including tori bosch the editor of future tense who's edited will and i on many occasions and uh, farhad manju who is currently with the new york times as an opinion writer but used to write for Slate. you guys work together right will
1: Yeah, way back in the day when I I got my start in tech journalism, I was the junior blogger and Farhad was the tech columnist at Slate.
0: So we'll have a roundtable with the four of us and we're actually going to talk about how tech journalism has changed over the years. As technology has seeped deeper and deeper into every facet of our lives, the way we talk about it and report on it has changed as well. So I'm excited to have that conversation uh, looking back and forward with this great group of people.
1: And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best stories we saw online this week. That's all coming up on If Then. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign
2: up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: Okay, it's time for a roundtable discussion about tech journalism. We're going to talk about how coverage of the big tech companies has changed in recent years and how readers have changed too. Joining us to share her insights is my colleague, Tori Bosch. She's the editor of Future Tense, which we talk about at the beginning and end of the show every week, and which you all should be reading regularly. Tori, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And joining us also is Farhad Manju, an opinion writer for The New York Times. Farhad has also written about the tech industry for Slate and many other outlets in the past. Welcome, Farhad. Hey, good to be here. And of course, Will is still with us. Hi, Will.
1: Hey, I'm excited to be in this August Tech journalism company.
0: So I actually want to start by doing kind of a quick lightning round. If everyone could just take one minute to say why the heck they wanted to write about technology, like what dorkiness led them here, and and what year they started. Uh, we'll start with Tori.
2: So, I was really into technology as a teenager and then took a programming class that I hated and thought I would never touch technology again. But then I sort of fell into the future tense role in 2011 and have really enjoyed spending the past eight years living in the future.
0: <laughs> wow. Okay. And you're just also a fantastic editor. And Farhad, when did you get started with this and why tech?
3: Um, I started in 2000. So, I have always been interested wow. in tech. Like, yes, they a the last boom. Um, <laughs> and,. Um, And so I've always been interested in tech, but I didn't really want to, like I took computer science classes in college, but I didn't, I did, that wasn't for me. Um, But I also worked at the college newspaper. And so it combined uh, the two things that I wanted to do into one job. And um, I mean, like thinking about the future is kind of the main thing that I've always done sort of in this industry. And like, that's just my drug. I love doing that.
0: And you continue to, uh, you have a weekly column now. And Will, what about what year did you get started?
1: Uh, I started in tech journalism in 2011. I started in journalism in 2005 as a local news reporter, and then I did a master's in political journalism. I actually thought I was going to cover US foreign policy in the Middle East. Um, The war in Syria broke out when I was scheduled to go over there. Uh, I ended up getting an internship at Slate. And then at some point, I, I loved Slate. I wanted to stick around. They were like, hey, do you know anything about tech? And I said, well, not really. And they said, well, can you learn? I said, sure. Uh, And so I got a job blogging about tech for Slate and just got sucked into this this vortex and uh, ended up loving it.
0: (laughs) This is how a lot of people get their beats assigned. It's like, okay, well, learn it, right? (laughs) I I, I started in tech journalism about three years ago, uh, but before that worked for over 10 years on uh, tech policy issues. I worked on a community radio. I worked at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I worked on media consolidation issues. So, uh, so many things that touch this space. And, and now I, I always wanted to be a journalist. I worked on privacy, surveillance, all kinds of stuff. And now I get to be one. So I'm really grateful for that. But I, I want to start actually with talking about something that seems to have changed like really dramatically in the past few years. And that's how we cover major tech companies. Farhad, I'm curious if you've noticed that we use a different lens now in how we Cover the companies that have become the most powerful industries or companies in the world. Is it more critical than it used to be, or, or is it just kind of a, a, a different focus? Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely more critical than it used to be,
3: and for good reason. I think tech journalism has, um, in you know, f- until about three years ago, had this reputation of being very cozy and kind of built on access. And I think for the most part, that was a pretty good kind of stereotype of the industry. Like, I feel like. A lot of us in tech journalism did not think enough about the negative consequences uh that could happen you know from the technology itself but also from like the fact that the like the, the dynamics in the industry the com- that it's ruled by few a few companies with all this power over kind of uh, the global economy um and then you know it was a number of factors but really i think the trump election that kind of changed the climate and this kind of skepticism and i think that the you know tech Journalism is, um, rightly, very skeptical of um, the industry now, and that's sort of how it should have always have been. But it's it's good that it's that way now.
0: Yeah, it does. It does. See, I mean, there definitely was a focus on all of the cool stuff that these companies were doing, and even a lot of palace intrigues or the people at the companies and what they were doing. But to Future Tense's credit, uh, you all have always taken kind of a critical lens. Tori, how what's your thoughts on how the industry is is being covered now versus how it was covered?
2: Yeah, I definitely agree that there's a lot more criticism now. I mean, Future Tense has always been a little bit critical or or a lot bit critical in many cases. And I think that's largely because so much of our DNA is in the political advocacy world, in the policy world, and in academia. So we've been working with writers who have had these concerns for a long time and who felt that the rest of the tech press was ignoring them – and so, you know, it's kind of nice to be able to look back and find really critical pieces of Facebook and Google in 2012 and 2011. Um, I mean, I think in some ways, Future Tense was intended to be a little bit of a reaction to a lot of the sort of daily tech press, which was often more concerned with the palace intrigue, which is fascinating, but also the sort of gadgets. Um, now, I think throughout tech journalism, there's a lot more of an emphasis on on power, but also on how technology changes the way people live and how people can be involved with thinking about the technologies that are so influential in their lives.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm just thinking back like when I first intersected with Future Tense, I was working with the Open Technology Institute at – it was called the New America Foundation at that point. Now it's New America with a researcher, Sita Ganghaderon, who uh, was doing research – and this was back in I think 2012 or so – about how ads targeted during the subprime mortgage crisis uh, for bad financial products were being sent to uh, – you know, people based perhaps on their race or on their location, uh, and and perhaps they were in a primarily like black or Latino area, and they were more likely to see an ad for a bad financial product online than perhaps a white internet user was. And so, yeah, academics were thinking about this and trying to get the word out. And Future Tense was was giving space to this. Um, Will you've 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 watched this space move? What about you? What are your thoughts on on how we've we've changed the way we've looked at these companies?
1: Yeah, so I came to tech journalism at a moment right after the Arab Spring when there was this really sort of widespread optimism that the, the Internet was facilitating change and revolution and freedom on a global scale and that the platforms like Twitter were and Facebook were really driving it all and they were seen as forces for good. And that obviously I think has, has changed dramatically over the years and, and rightly so. Um, there was also still, I, when I started in 2011, there was still a fair amount of enthusiasm about just like the different ways you could use the internet. Um, There were experiments in social media. There were fun, you know, browser extensions weren't cliche and boring yet. So I thought when I went back and looked at some of my early blog posts that it would capture some of that optimism and enthusiasm. In fact, I guess partly due to the guidance of Tori and other wise editors at Slate. I was, I was more critical than I realized from the start. I mean, there were stories in 2012 about Facebook uh, developing face recognition and violating our privacy and tracking us everywhere we go. So that was always there. But I think that the tenor has, has absolutely changed. And now I think the critical lens, the sort of holding power to account lens that has been a focus in investigative journalism and political journalism for a long time, I think that has now become the default mode of, of tech journalism as well.
0: You mentioned the Arab Spring. Something that happened after that uh, was Snowden, and that was about how the government is watching us. And, and and the idea of digital surveillance was primarily about government surveillance. Now that conversation has has shifted to corporate surveillance. tori, what are your what are your thoughts on that shift from thinking about, you know, worries of of the government watching us to corporations watching us? has has that changed the way we think about privacy?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one problem with the privacy discussion is that so many of the harms that we're talking about, whether it's facial recognition in Facebook or facial recognition and Border Patrol, is that they feel sort of theoretical. Like, it's hard for us to demonstrate to people how your face print being stolen could affect you in the long run. But when you get something like Snowden, it sort of crystallizes for people exactly what these sorts of apparatus look like. And so... I think the Snowden example helped awaken people who hadn't thought very seriously about government surveillance to the privacy invasions. And I think it was Farhad mentioned 2016, I think that did the same thing for making us think about privacy and private companies. Um, It seems that a lot of the time we need these sort of external events to help people understand and wrap their minds around exactly what the concerns can be. And, you know, on the one hand, that can be a little bit frustrating. It feels like, you know, I've been warning you about these things for a really long time. But it also makes a great deal of sense. People have very busy lives and these technologies just kind of, you know, insert themselves in seamlessly. And it's easy to just kind of let that happen until something external sort of wakes you up to – the dangers involved with having your information be spread across so many companies and devices and um, stakeholders. Farhad,
0: do you have thoughts on this? It seems that, yeah, Snowden maybe was a wake-up call in some ways, but didn't really spur this privacy movement. And now there seems to be this kind of ambient, not ambient, but rather uh, very pronounced uh, dissatisfaction with the the economy of the internet.
3: Yeah, I mean, I – I think that it was less about sort of these big um, privacy breaches or events like Snowden and more about the ubiquity of the technology. So, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't have smartphones and we weren't taking technology with us everywhere we went and it sort of wasn't tracking us all the time, wasn't listening to us all the time. Um, now, I mean, in a very short amount of time, uh, technology became like very deeply intertwined with kind of what it means to be a human being in uh, the modern world. Like, it's just kind of baked into kind of everything we do. And I think that more than anything, like, raises uh, concern. Like, everyone sort of knows it's unavoidable. It's unavoidable for, like, themselves, for their children. And um, just, like, in you can't escape it. And I think that has kind of added to this, you know, skepticism in, in, in journalism, but also just in society about what these things are doing to us as a species and, like, as individuals. Um, I feel like that has been the, kind of the biggest reason for thinking about this stuff more deeply
0: right and now we know regulators are, are thinking about this deeply too will since you've been working on this has there always been talk of the government stepping in and doing something or is this like a new moment that we're in now where it seems to really it seems more concrete to me anyway but but perhaps it's always been like this and they just never did anything. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'd actually be curious, in in your world, April, when you were in the advocacy and nonprofit world, maybe there was more talk of it there. I know that, that tech journalism tended to ignore academia for a long time, um, probably less true today in my corner of tech journalism I think there was a lot of skepticism still about tech regulation when I started reporting in, in 2011 2012 um, I was skeptical of it myself I wrote some critical articles about uh, gdpr in particular the right to be forgotten which I still think is is um, deeply problematic but I sort of saw it as like oh Europe has really overstepped and gotten this wrong and and the United States, uh, has the right approach of, of sort of laissez faire hands off you know it's a dynamic world let's let the competitive marketplace sort it out i have completely come around on that and think we absolutely need new rules and and laws and i think that's been i think i'm sort of part of a trend there i'm not Definitely not ahead. I wasn't ahead of the curve. I, maybe I was behind the curve, but I think that actually, I think that absolutely has been the curve. And you, you see it with Congress today. I mean, people on both sides of the aisle are looking at ways to rein in platforms power and um, the DOJ and the, the FTC are divvying up the big tech companies to see who gets to take an antitrust whack at each one. So yeah, I think there's been a huge shift.
0: Uh, Farha, Tori, do you have thoughts on on the, the kind of taste for regulation that seems to be more pronounced now?
1: Um
3: I, I think that it's still, there's still um, a vein of skepticism about regulation, and there ought to be, uh, mm-hmm. because we sort of haven't done this before, kind of thought about the, the way that the government interacts with these companies that have so much, um, both market power, but also like social power, that power over, you know, what we can say, kind of political power. Um, and I think that, you know, done wrongly or sort of uh, haphazardly, regulating could have some worse unintended consequences. And so, you know, I'm, I'm all for us starting to think about how to regulate these companies. But I also think that that conversation um, shouldn't be rushed. And I worry a little bit that there's a there's a kind of, um there's a, everyone assignment. is sort of rushing to join this bandwagon. Yeah, yeah and, and we won't, we, we may not be kind of get there very carefully.
2: And I would agree with, with Farhad there in that I think also there's this risk of regulating the companies as they are right now, rather than what they might be in the future and possibly further entrenching the existing companies um, at the expense of smaller companies. One of my first sort of critical pieces on Future Tense was, excuse me, in 2012, a call to nationalize Facebook, um, which I love. And it's very much a product of its time in a strange way in that it was extremely skeptical of Facebook, but not at all of the government, or at least not as much as it would have been today. Now, I think that checking Facebook's power in 2012 would have been a great idea. But putting it in the government's hands feels really terrifying to me. And while it was sort of a modest proposal, it does sort of indicate that sometimes these regulation discussions happen in a a little bit of um, with um, a bias toward the present rather than the future.
0: Yeah, no, one thing I just want to add to this is that I think a lot of the reasons why we're having these conversations now, we're not sure what it would look like. And, and we should be very, very careful. I completely agree. But why we seem to be so immature behind and not immature, but we, why we this isn't as thought through as it could have been considering how long these companies have been with us is because the definition of a healthy internet that was really proposed and, and, and kind of was championed in the mid '90s was one that was primarily free of government regulation, and so uh, is kind of a libertarian vision of the internet. And so now uh, we're we're dealing with how that's kind of terminated in a very corporatized form, um, and and we just haven't thought about what regulating these platforms would look like, despite the fact that we've had them now for well over a decade. Um, I actually want to stop there for a second because we're going to take a quick break before we finish our conversation. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So now I want to talk about something that I'm creeped out about, but I think you all have thoughts on. We And Farhad mentioned this. We have tech more deeply embedded into our lives. Our, Our phones are with us. Everybody has one just about you know, computers are everywhere, screens are everywhere. People are bringing AI into their homes. And we're adopting these technologies despite, you know, scores of warnings about how intrusive they are. You know, I'm really thinking about like letting Alexa or a uh, a Google Home in. You know, what does it indicate to you all that we continue to adopt despite the warnings? Uh, Farhad, what are your thoughts on that?
3: Um, this is the this is the kind of fundamental difficulty. Like these technologies are very convenient and they add some like actual measure of I don't know pleasure and convenience to people's lives. People like them, um, and it's difficult when you buy like a doorbell camera or something to think mm-hmm. about the like long-range implications of that, like, you know, it's spying on all my neighbors, like, what if the government gets a hold of this? Like, can I set up a surveillance uh, system in my neighborhood? All those things, like, don't occur to you. Like, the harms are theoretical and kind of far off, and the benefits are, like, right here. Um, and, you know, that's, it's sort of similar to, like, why we buy gas-guzzling cars or other things, uh, you know, that are kind of
0: damaging in, like, this
3: long-run collective way, but, you know, beneficial to us on an individual basis.
0: Yeah, well, what are your what are your thoughts? I know that that you've written quite a bit about uh, AI in the home.
1: Yeah, the surveillance cameras on doorbells absolutely creep me out. I agree with that. I actually think when it comes to some of the smart speakers it, that we put in our homes, the Amazon Echo devices and Google Homes and HomePods, we're actually worrying about the privacy implications. Just the right amount, I think, for once. Um, I mean, I think people, almost everybody I talk to about buying an Echo or equivalent device has thought about the fact that it could be listening at any time, um, has thought about the fact that they're bringing a giant corporation into their kitchen or their living room. Um, maybe because these devices came along at a time when we had a heightened awareness, we just, I think we're more cognizant of those risks. I actually think relative to the risks of some of the other technologies we use every day, they might even be overblown a bit. I mean, I, I, just, there aren't that many ways for um, a, a smart speaker to go wrong when it's only recording after a wake word. I mean, it can mishear and think it's hearing a wake word and hear a snippet of conversation, but it's usually a short snippet. Um, I've listened to my Alexa recordings. They're not that interesting. I'm not saying we shouldn't be worried. We absolutely should be worried. But it's easy to forget. I mean, the, like... With Gmail, Google can read everything we put in an email. I'm, we've all accepted that. We sort of accepted it a long time ago, I guess. Maybe maybe a few of us uh, have been have resisted it, but um, I think that's more intimate than anything that my that my Echo probably picks up from me. So I have a slightly contrarian view on on that.
3: I totally agree with that. I feel like we um, over-worry about smart speakers and under-worry about smartphones. And like smartphones are the real thing we should worry about. But you know, we all have them. So uh, we like got them before we started worrying about them. and So it's like a different conversation.
0: Yeah, I guess we just have to trust that these companies are doing what they say they're doing. And sometimes we find out that that's not the case. But I, I, I want to move on to uh, some unexpected things. Tori, you mentioned uh, to me when we were preparing for this show... That one thing that you didn't quite see coming or that forming in the way it has 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 been the way uh, genetics uh, testing and and kind of the tech around genetics has unfolded, particularly with forensics. Can you talk to me a little bit about how that's been unexpected for you and and how you've been kind of following this space for so long? And this was one that was a bit left field.
2: Sure. I mean, all I like to do in life is talk about genetic genealogy right now. I'm sort of obsessed with it. So genetic genealogy is probably – the technology that most came out of nowhere for me and then had a massive impact very quickly. So all of a sudden, after um, the Golden State Killer was arrested and after the Bear Brook murder, um, people might have heard the Bear Brook podcast, um, both murders were essentially solved using this technique of having law enforcement with the help of a private company navigate genetic databases on this site called GEDmatch. So, dozens of cold cases have been solved rapidly in short periods of time. When people first started submitting their DNA to this open source database, and when they first started getting the test done in the first place, they weren't thinking, my DNA is now going to implicate a fifth cousin once removed who I've never met. All of a sudden, there's this huge privacy discussion that none of us really thought through that is actually leading to people being arrested. And, you know, these are murders. These are terrible cases that we really want to be solved. But it's a change that happened within the span of just a few months, which is a massively short period of time compared with the way most of the discussions around these breakthrough sciences happen um, as a sort of coda to this long-winded answer. <laughs> um, Genmatch, the open source database that has been used by law enforcement, very recently changed its terms of service. Now you have to opt in to allowing your genetics to be used in this manner if you upload your information. Um, that's really changing the game. So all of a sudden, this sort of spigot that was open has really dried up. Um, and I think it's possible that in five years, we're going to look back at, at this sort of 18-month period of time and think, wow, that was bizarre. Um, but maybe not. And for me, it's just been fascinating to see a story play out on a just totally different timeline than we usually work with in technology and science journalism.
0: Fred, I'm curious if there's anything similar for you that you reported on in the past that didn't really turn out the way you expected or, or something that's unfolded in, in our space that has been particularly surprising to you.
3: I mean, I have been kind of fascinated over the years by how we uh, process kind of true and false things because of the internet. I wrote a book about kind of the conspiracy, how conspiracy theories would rule the internet. Um, and for a lot of the things I sort of predicted turned out to be right uh, in terms of like how factlessness is now in, uh, in sort of sway in society. Um, on the other hand, I feel like I totally missed the role that big tech companies would play in like monitoring and deciding on speech. Like I was sort of much more worried about, uh, the government and about, um, kind of government censorship, which, you know, we we've thought about for some time. Um, and the role that companies play in like how, uh, society, kind of thinks and works like YouTube's algorithm or, um, you know, newsfeed ranking or, uh, Instagram filtering, like all this stuff is just so much more, um, Important, I think because the companies have such a much larger role in society than like I had anticipated um, and to me those are still like the biggest and most vexing kind of conversations about this industry and I feel like the ones that are going to be most the most difficult to kind of solve um, in a way that feels uh, you know fair to everyone. Um, so I'm really worried about that like and kind of what we do about uh, misinformation like whether we correct too much how we do it. Um, And I just feel like we have no good answers uh, for this problem.
0: I'm so worried about it, too. I think that it's really central to having a functioning democracy. We need to be sure that we have the information we need to vote. But we also do we don't want to give up free speech. It's super, super important. It's I agree, like the most vexing conversation right now. And there's no there's no like magic or easy answer to this. Will, to you, finally, is there anything that uh, that you reported on the past that unfolded in a surprising way or, or something that happened in a way you didn't expect?
1: Yeah, I think for me, one of my biggest regrets in tech journalism is that I didn't see the importance of GamerGate at the time that it happened. Mm. Um, it was a sort of scandal that originated in the online gaming community, but turned into an organized harassment campaign against some female journalists in particular, and. I thought, oh, that's a you know, it's a gamer thing. It's not relevant to the rest of us. I let other people cover it. And I, I think, in a in a real way, Gamergate kind of provided the template for how uh, social media gets manipulated, and, and how um, elections get manipulated, and how uh, people get hounded off of a platform. How some people's speech gets suppressed. How other people's speech gets amplified. It was all there in microcosm in Gamergate. And, and I kind of missed it, and I, I wish now that I had seen that.
0: Right, and then even before Gamergate, I just want to give a plug to a great piece by Rachel Hampton, one of our journalists at Slate, who did a cover story uh, a month or two ago called The Black Feminist Who Saw the Alt-Right Threat Coming uh, that talks about how there was communities even before uh, Gamergate blew up, primarily of people. Black women who are on social media who are dealing with extreme harassment and trolls and just people didn't see the gravity of this and weren't taking them seriously. And and, and that goes to what you're saying about Gamergate as well. And that's actually going to do it for our roundtable today. I want to thank Farhad so much for joining us and Tori as well. Thanks. Thanks so
1: much for having us. Great to talk to both of you.
0: One final quick break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week.
2: No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
4: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners. Whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: Will, what tab do you want to share with everyone this week?
1: All right, this is one that as soon as I read it, April, I wanted to get your take on it. I immediately thought of you. Mm. Um, It was an op-ed, sort of an op-ed, sort of a work of fiction by Cory Doctorow. Um, He's the co-editor of Boing Boing. He's sort of been a, a fixture in tech journalism for a long time, particularly focused on the regulations that govern the internet and media and intellectual property law and all that kind of thing. He also writes science fiction, and he contributed to a series in the New York Times called Op-Eds from the Future. It's imagining that we're 10 years from now, and you're writing a New York Times op-ed about the way things are at that time. I guess that's 2029. This op-ed was headlined, I shouldn't have to publish this in the New York Times. And the premise of Dr. O's work of speculative Op-ed-ery is that um, the current uh, discontent over the way that the big social platforms are managing online speech spirals into this, this huge sort of backlash and, and legislation around the world that basically requires them to uh, regulate speech on their platforms, that makes them liable for anything that people say on their platforms that is deemed illegal by a national government um, and so the result is this this weird, uh, restrictive, uh, automated, moderated social future in which machines are scanning everything we try to post on these platforms for any words that suggest you might be writing about something that would offend the the regime of mm-hmm. a given country. Um, and so it's it's sort of dystopian. Um, it's the idea that the internet basically dies because we go too far in the direction of making platforms responsible. For online speech, so uh, you've thought a lot about Section Two Hundred and Thirty of the Communications <laughs> oh, Decency yeah. Act over the years. You've taught me a lot about it. That's the law, obviously, that gives uh, websites certain protections for both moderating speech or, or refraining from moderating speech, um, and says they they can't really be held liable. Really, from
0: having to. To do anything, yeah,
1: (laughs) right. So, so what did you think? I mean, is there a danger that we go? I mean, a lot of people are calling for Section 230 reform because it's basically given the tech platforms a a free pass. Is there a danger we go too far, as Doctor O imagines, and basically make them just dictatorial arbiters of speech or a tool of of governments and repressive regimes that want to crack down on online speech?
0: Well, they already are, uh, uh, (laughs) like scanning everything we say, and they do that in order to serve us the most relevant ads. I think it's something to to be clear about. Um, and they uh, already can decide and do decide what does and doesn't get to stand. They just don't do it with consistency, um, nor do they have any um, compulsion legally or responsibility legally to do so in a way that's really serving the needs of their users. Um, so it's uh, it's a bit complicated, but he is getting to the idea that if we ask platforms – to decide what is and isn't allowed. And we keep asking them to do this. We're going to land in a space where nothing is allowed and we're unable to speak and they become kind of oppressive places. Um, But I do uh, think that there are ways of adding liability to these platforms. So just to be clear, something you said before, which is that, This has to do with the Communications Decency Act of the mid-90s, and that, as you said, essentially says that these platforms are not liable for anything that anyone does or says on their site. Um, And I do not believe that dealing with that lack of liability or adding a sliver of liability or chipping away at that immunity um, in a nuanced way is going to be this like – Either we have free speech or we don't have free speech proposition and treating it as if it's this on off switch where either websites are completely immune legally from having to do anything and take responsibility for anything that happens on their platform. And not having uh, any immunity and, and that also being a free speech on and off switch, I think, is is just not true. Not that I think it's not true. It's, it's, it's just not true. <laughs> there are ways of more nuanced ways of doing this. And someone who's written and, and spoken a lot about this is Danielle Citron, um, who's a law professor. I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on it? I mean, I understand the warnings that he's posing. But and I know that you've mentioned before that, you know, maybe we don't want these platforms to decide what is and isn't correct to say.
1: Yeah, I really struggle with this. I'm, I just, I'm trying to always learn and come to a better perspective right. on it because I don't, I don't feel like I have a great answer to it. Um, I did a piece. I'm going to take the chance to plug one of my pieces for One Zero. Um yes. I did a piece recently, um, headlined "The One Rule of Content Moderation That Every Platform Follows," and the the premise was basically that.
0: Mm-hmm. I, that was a great piece. I really recommend folks reading it.
1: Yeah. Oh, thanks, April. The premise was basically that the real regulator of online speech right now is is public backlash and, and media scrutiny. And that's what gets the rules changed, whether it's Facebook you know, finally banning Alex Jones, um, whether it's YouTube taking or not taking certain actions w- with regard to homophobic video creators. Um, but I talked to a couple academics for that as well, who are also wary of, of reforming Section 230, one was David Kay, who was the UN Special Rapporteur for Human Rights, who who wants to see um, online speech regulated within the framework of human rights law. I thought that was an interesting idea. I'm not sure exactly how it would work. Another was Jennifer and I'm, I'm going to get their name. I, I feel really bad that I'm mispronouncing Jennifer's name. I think it's Gregeel, um, at Syracuse's Newhouse School, who said, actually, you know, maybe corporate citizenship and and, uh, and public action and public pressure are part of the solution long term. I mean, maybe, maybe it's better to have regulation by backlash than regulation by fiat. I don't know. Again, I don't know that I agree with any of this. I, I value your perspective as well. I think you're probably right that the slope isn't quite as slippery as Dr. O paints it in this op-ed.
0: Yeah, I would I would like to actually see a future and I'd like to see a kind of a speculative fiction piece about what it would look like if the most powerful companies in the world had some level of liability uh, for what is and isn't said on their sites. Like, what would that look like? You know, because there are civil rights laws and this isn't like directly corollary or you can't like it, I don't think I want I don't want to overcompare this, but there are civil rights laws that say that you can't, you know, discriminate against people at work and you can't discriminate, you know, against people in like, you know, public businesses and things like that. And, and so like, you know, there are no laws like that on the internet and we have a lot of racism and we have a lot of hate and we have a lot of, you know, disinformation. And, and so I'm just curious, like, what would some level of liability look like?
1: So there's the true Um, test of a speculative fiction writer's imaginative powers. Can they imagine a future in which the internet is not hellish? I would love to see. I'd love to see <laughs> that op-ed from the future. Imagine what it would look like if somebody actually got this right, because we have no idea. But April, let's go to your tab this week. Um, what are you interested in?
0: Yeah, so my tab for this week is a anime, actually, uh, from the mid '90s, from 1995, from Japan. Uh, it's a series called Neon Genesis Evangelion, and it's one of the most beautiful kind of pieces of science fiction. So I'm also talking about science fiction this week uh, that I have ever seen. And I'm not a big anime fan by any stretch, but I loved this, and it really changed the way I think. And um, it is about a a young boy who is uh, recruited by his father to pilot this kind of um, giant part robot human uh, machine that has to combat with um, aliens. And it is about, like, our relationship to technology, to robotics, uh, what happens when the world ends. It's about our relationships with each other. Um, And it's kind of, I think, one of the most complicated and and, um, beautiful pieces of, I don't know, television (laughs) made about, uh, you know, our coming automated future. Um, And... And it's also just about our, you know, humanity and what happens once we've kind of innovated ourselves into a future where we are no longer welcome or where we've kind of created technology that doesn't need us anymore or once we're inhabited in in such a way that we need to fight for our lives with like the ultimate piece of technology that we've created. It's super complicated. What I'm saying is it doesn't quite make perfect sense, but I really recommend people watch it. It's it's just absolutely stunning. Um, And uh, one criticism though I'll add is that the Netflix it's on Netflix now and that that's why I'm bringing it up In the Netflix overdub, one criticism has been that uh, two of the the friends who um, always appeared to have kind of a a love story within them, they kind of took out that uh, that that queer love story and 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 made it seem like they were more friends and and less of a romantic relationship. And that's been a criticism of the Netflix overdub. Um, I haven't finished watching the Netflix overdub, but I watched this series some time ago, and it it changed the way I think about technology um, and uh, and the world that we're building and the world that we're going to have to inhabit. the future so i recommend it while it's on netflix who knows how long it'll be there but um but yeah check it out while it's there it's it's really just beautiful
1: that sounds great i've i've i'm not familiar with it at all i've seen some references to it on twitter and had no idea what the hell they were talking about Um, but i'm interested to check it out now
0: yeah it's it's just about alienation and tech (laughs) and robots and giant fighting robots um which we all like so yeah i recommend it Uh, That actually does it for our show this week. Please continue to listen. We're going to have some great Slatesters step in and have some fantastic guests and and continue to have a really engaging show about uh, the most powerful industry in the world, the technology industry, um, and all that we've been talking about for so long. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hello.
1: Thanks again to the guests today, Tori Bosch and Farhad Manju. You can follow Tori on Twitter at TheKibosh. That's T-H-E-K-I-B-O-S-C-H. You can follow Farhad at Fmanjoo. F-M-A-N-J-O-O.
0: And thanks so much to Will for joining us uh, for this very special episode in Roundtable. You should follow him on Twitter right away. He's at Will or Remus. Uh, you can follow me if you want to. I'm at April Laser. And thanks so much to everyone who's left us a comment or a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate everyone who's done that. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Each week you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com futurenews. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Thanks also to Ghanadi Joe Johnson, who engineered for us today at YR Media in Oakland. And thanks to Danielle Hewitt, who engineered at Slate's DC Studios. And thanks so much to everyone who's listened to Will and I ramble for so long. It's been a lot of fun. I'm glad that you were able to join us, Will.
1: Thank you so much. And yeah, thanks to all the listeners. And do stick around. I know some of the Slate tech reporters who are going to be hosting the show in the weeks to come, and they're really good and will bring fun and interesting new perspectives.
0: Bye, y'all.